Father, I'm thankful that I have a room uh, that is ready for a, uh, a teaching, Father. And I pray uh, a thanks that we have those who want to hear this teaching tonight. I pray as well, Father, that you would use it in a mighty way to reach many other ears. Thank you, Lord, for the word, for Daniel's uh, authenticity and, and his commitment and diligence to, um, to represent what he heard correctly and uh, accurately, Father. To be a faithful servant to you in his day so that we can learn from him and be faithful to you in our day. And what a timely lesson it is, Father, that we would be studying this right now in the midst of uh, a world that is uncertain and seems to be chaotic. And what a great message to remember, Father, that you're in control. So show us that again, even as we consider uh, ages long ago and things yet to come. Help us understand we're part of this plan, too, as it moves around and through us and onward. And help us to have uh, that peaceful confidence to know that, that you are sovereign and that you sit on your throne even through these things. And we look forward to what you have for us this evening, Father, in your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, I'm going to move the front lights down. If you guys, um, hopefully this doesn't bother too many people up front. Okay. It, it will make it easier for everyone to see the text. All right. What it does for me, though, is it completely blinds me up here. So I have to result, resort to the, the bane of anyone over 45. I have to use these little readers. We have reached the conclusion of the chiastic structure that defines chapters 2 through 7. We're in 7 tonight. That's the final chapter in that structure. And the final step in our chiastic structure is literally back to the future. Because it's a chapter that is prophetic about the age of the Gentiles. And we are moving back to talking about it now, having looked at it once before in chapter 2. So this is the chiastic structure we've been working through. We are now at... The last step in this chiasm, we are at A prime. A prime is chapter 7, in which we see chapter 2 and 7 now aligning both on the same topic. A prophecy about the age of the Gentiles, which is that period of human history where God has planned for Israel to be under the domination of Gentile nations. This age is marked by three things, which we learned back in chapter 2. The age of the Gentiles is a time for Israel to be scattered around the world. It is a time for their city, Jerusalem, to be under Gentile domination. And thirdly, it is an age that must continue until the Messiah's second coming, until Christ returns to rule on earth. At his second coming, at his rule, the Jewish nation will then finally be moved out from under Gentile authority, Gentile oppression. They will be returned to their place as the supreme nation on earth in keeping with the promises God gave to the Jewish people and his covenants to them. So we're currently still in this age, obviously. We're still waiting for Jesus' second coming. And as I mentioned, if any of this background is unfamiliar to you, I just encourage you to revisit the teaching from chapter 2 of this study. That review will also be helpful for you as you listen to what's happening in Daniel 7, because what Daniel 7 does is take the teaching of chapter 2 and expand on it greatly. And therefore, by that same token, understanding chapter 7 really depends to a certain extent on a good understanding of chapter 2. Let's set the scene for the events of chapter 7, which are the last point on that chiasm. So let's do chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, and you can read along with me. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had wings of an eagle. 
I kept looking until its wings were plucked and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind also was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. After this, I kept looking and behold, another one like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. So we're going back here in time a little bit. And by that I mean this chapter, chapter 7, is dated to the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. And remember chapter 5, two chapters ago, described how this king, Belshazzar, came to his end. How his reign ended. And then in chapter 6, we move forward into the first king, King Darius, of the Medo-Persian Empire. And then here we are now back to the beginning of Belshazzar's reign as king. Now, to put some time to this, history records that he reigned, Belshazzar reigned, for 14 years. So we've gone back now 15 years in time. That would mean that Daniel is roughly 65 to 68, maybe, somewhere in that range. We said he was in his 80s in chapter 6. He's still serving the king of Babylon. And it's at this point in his life he receives this troubling dream. And with it, he also receives a personal interpretation from what seems to be an angel sent from the Lord. This dream and its interpretation, as I've already mentioned, parallels the dream that God gave to Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2, which we studied back at that time. But it is not purely repetition. There's quite a bit of new stuff now in this chapter. In fact, taken as a whole, this chapter, chapter 7, reveals more detail about future events than any other single chapter in the entire Old Testament. In fact, you'd have to go all the way to the book of Revelation to find anything even comparable in what's presented in this chapter. So, the Lord is speaking to what we know to be the final king of Babylon, Belshazzar, through Daniel, in the same way that he spoke to the first king of Babylon, in the same way on the same subject. So in verse 2, Daniel begins to describe his strange dream. He says, four winds were stirring up the great sea. Now when you attempt to interpret symbols like this in prophetic passages, you need to be constrained by proper rules of interpretation, lest you just allow your imagination to run wild, and then it's a free-for-all, and it can mean anything to anyone, and no one really knows what it means. So the meaning of symbols has a rule associated with it. How do you know what a symbol means? Well, the rule is that the answer will always be found in the Bible, and usually in the context in which the symbol is given. Think of it like a bullseye, in which you start at the center and you move outward. Where you see the symbol is the first place to look for its answer. And often you'll find that in Scripture that even the same verse even, or maybe one verse on either side, the very symbol is defined. It's said to be what it is, and you don't have to guess. So your first place to look is in the actual setting in which it's found. If you find no answer there, your next step is like a bullseye. Move out one step. Just look anywhere else in that book. Typically that author is using a symbol in consistent ways and has probably told you what it means at some point in the course of the book. You may have to back up to find it or look forward in to find it. And in a few cases, you won't find the symbol anywhere in the same book that it's mentioned, in which case you just go somewhere else in the Bible. And that just means you have to have a pretty good understanding of Scripture and of passages that are prophetic if you're going to get to the answer. But even if you're before that knowledge, you haven't yet found the answer somewhere in the Bible, don't go guessing. That's not available to us. In this case, we're looking at sea, winds, beasts, starting with the sea, The Great Sea, the term Great Sea, is consistently a reference to the Mediterranean Sea in the Bible. 
which was the greatest body of water that anyone in Israel experienced. In Scripture, the Mediterranean Sea is used symbolically in a consistent way to represent the population of the earth. You might think of the water of the Mediterranean Sea as just the masses of humanity that populate the earth. And more specific than that, it relates to the Gentile nations because the Jewish people always saw themselves as distinct from the other nations. In fact, the word implies that, right? Gentile simply means everybody except Jews. So when the Jewish prophet writes about the nations, it's understood that they don't include themselves in that understanding. So the Mediterranean Sea represents Gentile nations. And it's used that way consistently. You can see it in Isaiah. You can see it in Jeremiah. Jesus himself uses this very symbol in the same way in Matthew 13 and Luke 21. And you see it used the same way in multiple places in Revelation. So there's no guessing required. The Great Sea is the Mediterranean Sea, and it stands for Gentile nations. The Four Winds is a reference to God's power over creation. You notice it says it comes from heaven. It says that the winds came from heaven, the four winds of heaven. And, in fact, the word there for wind in Hebrew is a synonym for spirit. It could have been translated spirit. So verse 2 could say the four spirits from heaven. The point being that the four winds symbolically means that God is at work supernaturally to do something. It's the work of God, in other words. You see that used in Jeremiah, Zechariah, also in Revelation the same way. Next, Daniel says, four beasts emerge from this sea, that is, from the Gentile world. Each beast is different from the other, and Daniel describes each appearance. Now, before we look at each beast in turn, let's note the similarities in what we're reading, matching what we read in chapter 2. Remember in chapter 2, we saw the dream that Nebuchadnezzar received of this statue of four parts or four sections, and each of those sections of different metals, different types of metal, represented kingdoms. And in the fact that it's in the form of a statue represented a timeline. It was understood that you had to move from one to get to the next. They didn't exist at the same time. So it represented time moving from the head down to the feet. We studied this last time. But as you learned about these four kingdoms and the fact that they're a timeline of the age of the Gentiles, nevertheless, we didn't learn a whole lot about each kingdom. In fact, a couple of the kingdoms were mashed into a single verse in that chapter. But in this dream now, we have four beasts... Beasts don't line up. They're not in a timeline. They're independent of one another. They emphasize the nature of the kingdom. So this is a chapter in which the nature of each of these kingdoms is going to be examined, going to be explored a little bit. So this dream first confirms the earlier interpretations that we had in Daniel 2. In other words, if we had somehow missed the point of Daniel chapter 2, then when we came here to Daniel chapter 7, it would bring these two into alignment. So the first thing Daniel 7 does is help us make sure we knew what we were talking about with Daniel 2. Secondly, it's also going to give us a lot more insight about what's coming and why. So in chapter 7, we learn these details about not only all four kingdoms, but especially the last one. The fourth kingdom is the one that is clearly the focus in this chapter. We are sitting in the fourth kingdom, the first three already having come. And so when you talk about Babylon or Medo-Persia or the Greek Empire, or even the Roman beginnings of the fourth kingdom, it's all history to us. But as the world continues to move through this final kingdom, the fourth kingdom, our interest is naturally moving to how does all this come to conclusion? What you're going to find in chapter 7 is that the prophecy is going to focus a lot on the last part of the fourth kingdom because that's obviously the interest. So we've arrived at our interpretation of sea, wind, and we know these beasts represent Gentile kingdoms because they align with what we see in chapter 2. 
the Lord tells Daniel that he's going to move among the Gentile nations supernaturally. He's going to raise up four, the first of which we know to be Babylon, and it's pictured by a lion with wings. At one point, we hear that the wings of this lion are plucked, taken off, in other words, and then later, this beast, as he calls it, is made to stand up like a man, and a man's mind is given to it. Now, if I'm right, and these beasts correspond to the four segments of the statue, then I should be able to see close parallels between the descriptions. And sure enough, all the details of this beast match the history of Babylon perfectly. First, the nation itself used as its national symbols both a lion and an eagle at different times. And in fact, statues have been found in Babylon, in archaeological digs of current Babylon. They have found statues of lions with wings. You can see here the statue is worn by the weather and the wings have long since been taken away. But you can even see where the wings used to be. And so the symbol fits perfectly with Babylon. Furthermore, we hear that this beast matches the experience of Nebuchadnezzar's seven years of exile. He had his authority and honor removed by God, his wings plucked, as it were. And then later he was restored to living like a man instead of living like a beast. He was returned to his position of king, given his right mind again. Those are things that correspond to what we hear happening with this beast. Next, Daniel describes the second beast as a bear raised up on one side with three ribs in its mouth. Here again, we should expect that this symbol matches the history of the Medo-Persian Empire, and surely it does. First of all, in ancient Palestine, the bear was considered the second most fearsome predator after the lion. Remember in the statue, the diminishing value of the metals reflected the diminishing glory of each kingdom. And certainly this bear is slightly less glorious than the lion, at least as it was perceived in its day. Moreover, the bear is known for overpowering prey by its might, by its strength, crushing, ripping apart its prey. It doesn't chase them down with tremendous speed. It just has the power to overcome them by its strength. And that's a very good picture of the way that the Medo-Persian Empire went about military strategy in defeat of its enemies. They amassed huge armies that were orders of magnitude larger than their opposing armies. And they didn't necessarily do anything with great skill or great sophistication. They simply defeated enemies by sheer strength in numbers. And as they conquered, they would utterly destroy them with a vengeance. Furthermore, you notice the bear is lopsided, leaning on one side, half its body lifted up. Well, the empire of the Medo-Persians arose out of two peoples, the Medes and the Persians, but it was not a, a union of equals. The Persians were by far the more powerful people than the Medes. They had a much larger empire, much superior army to the Medes, and that's reflected in the fact that the bear is lopsided. Then you hear about these heavenly voices telling the bear to go out and devour much meat, and of course the Medo-Persians did in fact conquer everything that was in their way. And the three ribs, the kingdom defeated three major adversaries in its rise to world domination. First, Babylon, then a place called Lydian, and then lastly, Egypt. And those three conquests are represented by the three ribs. This empire ruled for 208 years, conquering a land area greater than even what Babylon possessed in the height of its day. Next, Daniel describes a beast that resembles a leopard, but not the kind of leopard you'd see in the zoo. This one has four heads and four wings. The beast corresponds, we would expect, to the Greek empire of Alexander the Great, which conquered the Medo-Persians. And sure enough, as we look at some of the details, it matches up. History reports that Alexander himself pointed to the book of Daniel, which existed in his day, of course. And he took as proof from the book that he was destined to conquer the world. 
And from that expectation, he went out. And with confidence in Daniel's prediction, his armies moved swiftly from west to east, completing a victory in record time. In just three years, Alexander conquered territory stretching from Greece to Africa to India, which reflects the swiftness of a leopard. During his life, he delegated governmental control over this vast area to four divisions, each with a single governor in charge of his respective division. Those divisions would be represented here by the four heads of the beast, four leaders, four men. And at his death, he had no heirs, so his empire was divided among four generals in four geographic regions. There was an east, a west, a north, and a south division to his kingdom, which is represented by the four wings, we would think. All of these details track with history and with what we learned in chapter 2. But the real interest has always been with the fourth kingdom, and particularly with how it ends. Not only does the fourth kingdom receive the most attention in chapter 2, it does here again in chapter 7. And it's also the most important period of the age of the Gentiles historically, because this is the period of the age that ushers in the return of Christ and the setting up of his kingdom. And so we're interested in knowing how this kingdom progresses, how it reaches its conclusion, how it transitions. So then Daniel describes the next vision that he sees in the dream, Daniel 7, 7 through 14. After this I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. I kept looking until thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were opened. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So the first thing we notice about Daniel's description of the fourth beast is in his inability to compare it to any living creature today. In the case of the earlier beasts, Daniel drew comparisons to real-life animals, a lion, an eagle, a bear, a leopard. Now, they're not fully normal, obviously, they had strange features, but at least he had some reference point. In this case, there is simply no comparison possible. The beast is unlike anything else, he says, dreadful, terrifying, and that detail alone kind of piques our interest a little bit in this fourth beast. He says it's very strong with iron teeth, and it's trampling, crushing all the prior kingdoms, and then it has these horns. It corresponds to the fourth kingdom, and there are several details in here that would confirm our interpretation. First, we're told that this kingdom devours the prior kingdoms. Well, that would confirm that this one follows the other ones, right? That would be the fourth kingdom. This one has to follow the Greek empire. Then we're also told this beast has, quote, iron teeth. Well, that reminds us of the iron legs of the fourth kingdom in the statue. There's another connection point. 
and then the, the ten horns. Now we're going to look at the horns a little more closely here in a minute, but we already see a confirmation in matching to Daniel chapter 2 because you remember in the statue, how did it end? Ten toes. Remember ten at the end of the statue. So the meaning of the ten was not explained. The ten toes didn't get any meaning assigned to it back in chapter 2. But now in this ten horns version in chapter 7, we are going to get the opportunity at least to understand it somewhat. Speaking of the horns, we learn that then among the ten, then an eleventh one suddenly appears on the beast. I'm not sure how that would have looked. And the horn was unique in that it had the facial features of a man who was able to speak. It uttered what Daniel says are great boasts, which means it just made these audacious claims concerning itself. And then it did violence to three of the other horns, which then resulted in only having seven of them left, plus this eleventh one still. Next, in verse 9, we see the end of all the beasts and the arrival of the new kingdom. I'm just summarizing, of course, what we've read. And this, again, matches the detail of the prior chapter. In fact, remember in chapter 2, the statue is destroyed by the arrival of that rock that's not cut by human hands, which represents Christ's second coming. You all remember this, right? And since the statue itself represented the age of the Gentiles, we learned that as Christ returns, he puts an end to that age of the Gentiles and sets up his own kingdom on earth. We see the same thing here. Different symbology, but the same thing. Four beasts representing the four kingdoms of the age of the Gentiles. And now we see something not symbolic so much as literal. We see a description of Jesus' return to his kingdom. And it starts with, it says, thrones being set up and the Ancient of Days taking a seat. Now, based on the context, we see Ancient of Days to be a reference to the Father God in the Godhead. Now, Father is all spirit. He doesn't have a body. So as Daniel describes him doing things that only a body can do, that's an anthropomorphism in Scripture. It means the assigning of human characteristics to God when he doesn't really have them. Like when God walked in the garden or when he sees or hears. These are ways in which we express what we know of God doing but using human points of reference to make it more sensible to us, more understandable. God is said to be seated here. So God gave a vision to Daniel of this ancient of days, as Daniel described him, sitting in a throne. But it's a vision. And he's seated in a throne in this case because he is taking his seat in the sense of a judge preparing to pass judgment. God is not setting up in his barca lounger for a little bit of rest. This is a very specific moment. God taking a seat in the court, getting ready to pass judgment. This description is similar to the description that John, the Apostle John, gives us of the glorified Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. As I read this, compared to what you just saw in Daniel 7, Revelation 1.13, he says, In the middle of the lampstands I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. There's some similarities there. Clearly they're not the same, nor are they the same person, because one was speaking of the Son of Man, one is speaking of the Ancient of Days, which is the Father. But the point is that you're seeing something that's meant to be reminiscent one of the other. Uh, a dream here, in this case, describing what things will be like at the very end. Much like John got a vision of Jesus. That is a vision of his second coming appearance. So these two moments are intended to be linked in our minds. Around the Father, we're told, was the court of heaven. His throne ablaze, river of fire flowing out from under him. All of that attended to by thousands and myriads of what I assume are angels. And then it says books are opened. That's a clear reference to a judgment moment. That is, the books of law opened and judgment made against what the law requires. And after the Father has sat down to judge, 
Our attention is turned to the events now on earth where the Father's judgment is directed. So this is a pattern that you see happening quite a bit in the book of Revelation. You'll move back and forth between something in heaven and the corresponding result taking place on earth. Here you see the Father sitting down to judge, judgment beginning, and then what is the effect on earth? So Daniel's vision is a preview of events that are described actually in more detail in Revelation. In effect, you could say Daniel 7 is a little revelation describing in a fast, summaried way the judgments of tribulation that ultimately result in earthly destruction leading up to the end of the age and the destruction of this beast. We'll talk more about that here in a minute. Furthermore, not only is the fourth beast destroyed, but it says, so are the remnants of the earlier beasts, so that all they represented is also taken away. And then it says, interestingly, before this judgment is concluded, they're permitted to continue for a time, a short time. What is that about? Well, we'll learn that more here in a minute as well. Finally, as the judgment comes about against the Gentile kingdoms that rule, then we see a new kingdom arising, beginning with the Son of Man, coming down from heaven. This reminds us of the rock coming down to destroy the statue. You see how it's lining up, right? Notice Daniel says in verse 13 that the Son of Man is presented before the Father before he comes down to earth to begin his rule. This little verse in Daniel 7 is actually Revelation 4 and 5. So if you look at Revelation 4 and 5 together, that two-chapter section of Revelation describes that one verse that just got mentioned. Let me just read a couple passages from that area. Revelation 4, 1 says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven. Recognize that? And one was seated on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and sardis in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Jump to 5.9. And then they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. That sounds similar to Daniel 7. Right? You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And then I looked, and I heard the voice of, look, of many angels around the throne. It's the myriads. And the living creature and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Ring any bells? Saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. This scene is the Son of God being presented before the Father, found worthy to be the judge, the one who can open the, the scroll, to receive the right to judge the world. And as you may know, as he opens each of those seals, it affects something on earth. There's an opening of a seal and, and a judgment follows on earth. And then it moves into other judgments after that. By the way, when Jesus refers to himself in the Gospels as the Messiah, he can use various titles to describe himself because the Messiah has various titles in the Bible. The title he uses most often by far is Son of Man. He uses it 31 times just in Matthew alone. He's referring every time to Daniel 7. 
Jesus appears to be most interested in connecting his ministry to the prophecy Daniel gives here in chapter 7 of him being the one worthy to open the scroll from Revelation 4 and 5 and able to come and conquer the enemy and set up his own kingdom. He's the one granted authority to rule over the earth. So to this point in Daniel's dream, everything we see is consistent with the parallels to Daniel chapter 2, right? Confirms that Daniel 2 and those kingdoms were correctly interpreted back then. It confirms that the fourth kingdom is the one of emphasis for us. It's the extremely dreadful, terrible one that draws all your interest. It confirms that the final stage of the kingdom emphasizes ten in some way that we're still trying to understand. And it confirms that this leads us to Christ's return. Let's talk about some of the new details that come out of this chapter. Beginning with the symbol ten. As I mentioned, it was included in the statue, but really never addressed. Here now it's been included, and there's been more detail given, and there's yet more to come. And as you're going to find, 10 is actually more complex than what we saw in the statue. In the statue, there was no 11th. You know, a beast with 10 horns, that's normal. But 11th toe is just plain weird. In this case, with the beast now, we have the opportunity for God to introduce the idea of the 11th and the removal of the 3, etc., etc. That tells us there's a lot more going on with the 10 than merely their appearance. And we're told that these things will accompany a brief period of intense judgment poured out from God in heaven against the fourth kingdom. That was given to us in Daniel 7 as well. So obviously we have a lot of questions here left to answer. And Daniel actually feels exactly the same way you do. So Daniel asks for help as well. That's where we go next in Daniel chapter 7, verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. Stop there for a moment. Daniel says that his spirit was distressed by these visions. I mean, that's, I guess, obvious, right? Just as Nebuchadnezzar had been disturbed by his dream and he was preoccupied with finding an answer, Daniel is the same way. He's preoccupied with getting an interpretation. Just as an aside, it would seem then that when God is intent on sending us messages by way of dream, which I don't think it happens all that often, but presuming it still does occasionally, then we should assume that the receiver, whoever it is, is going to have some sense innately that the dream has unique importance and then seek to find an answer to it. That may be a good rule of thumb for you if you're trying to figure out if your dreams have any spiritual meaning or not. Does it stick in your mind in a unique way? Do you remember all the details with clarity? Do you feel this compelling need to go find the answer to it? If you're like me, you don't remember it like 10 minutes after you wake up. So if you don't have all those feelings, it probably wasn't anything from God. It was probably just too much pizza the night before or something. I wouldn't (laughs) assign any more meaning than that. Daniel knows this dream's important. And in fact, even while he's still in his dream, this is sort of an interesting thing for me. It's not like he woke up and he got help. In the dream, he's asking for help. He says he asked someone, a fellow observer, uh, given that the only group he's mentioned so far are the myriads and the thousands, it would suggest perhaps that he was talking to one of them. That's why I said earlier, I think it's an angel that he's talking to here. The one who could interpret dreams, Daniel, needed his own interpreter for his dream. 
That little detail reminds us why the Lord works through interpreters. Remember the king of Babylon, the two kings, they received visions, but they lacked answers. They had to find Daniel to get the answer. So when they got the answer through Daniel, though he hadn't seen the dreams or the visions that they saw, they understood that his answer was coming supernaturally. It was the divinely inspired answer. They could assume then that this is all from God. Similarly then, even when the prophet himself, Daniel, needs to understand that what God is giving him is divine intervention. God works through an interpreter to connect those dots for people, for him, it seems. Wouldn't it be nice, by the way, to have someone in your dreams that you could just turn to at any moment and say, could you explain to me why I'm at school in my underwear right now? Because I don't understand why I did this. Am I the only one who has that dream? I don't In this case, we find... Confirmation of all the things that I proposed in the earlier passage. First, the four beasts are four kingdoms. All right, we got that. The same kingdoms as chapter 2. Got that. And the final kingdom is the kingdom of God that comes to rule the earth after all the four are gone. Got that. No surprises. But Daniel, I think, knew that too. And so he focuses in on what he really was interested in, which parallels our interest. Verse 19. Then I desire to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful with its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze, which devoured, crushed, and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up, and before which three of them fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts, and which was larger in appearance than its associates. I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the Highest One. And the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. So Daniel's attention is focused, as we would expect, on the fourth beast because of its uniqueness. And as I said, I think God made it unique so it would draw attention because this is the point. The point of chapter 7, by and large, is this beast. Because frankly, everything else has been a parallel to two and you had it already. So Daniel wants to know about the beast, the horns, all that goes with it. Notice he gives us a little more detail, though, about the horns themselves, and particularly about the boastful one. He says that 11th horn starts waging war with saints. Now, for anyone who's not clear on this, the term saint in Scripture is not a description of some special holier-than-thou person. The term saint is always a reference to just any and all who belong to God. His children by faith, those who believe. We would say today those who are saved or born again. If you believe in Jesus Christ, if you're saved, you're a saint. I don't mean you act saintly, but you are considered by Scripture a saint. So it says, at the end of the age of the Gentiles, remember these horns are all at the end, the toes, they're at the end. At the end of this age, right as it's about to transition and Christ is about to return, we find that an eleventh horn is trying to kill all believers. And Daniel says that horn wins to an extent. It overpowers them. It's succeeding in killing believers. And the horn's power, though, it says only lasts in that regard until the Ancient of Days passes judgment. Here again, the Father begins to open books and judgment begins to happen on the earth and it's executed to its conclusion. Interestingly, Daniel then says that the saints, which includes those who have been overpowered, I would add, are now taking possession of that same earthly kingdom. And this is interesting. It means then that those who are killed by the eleventh horn live again. I mean, that's implied, or they can't take possession of of the earth, right? And in their living again, they take back the kingdom that the fourth beast and the eleventh horn were fighting so hard to obtain in the first place. So what we're learning is the eleventh horn may win a few battles here and there against the saints, but the saints win the war because the Ancient of Days passes judgment. 
Alright, now this brings us to the heart of the chapter where the angel begins to interpret the meaning of these new symbols. So we're going to get our interpretation from the angel as well. Verse 23, Thus he said, The fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms, and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law. And they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit for judgment, and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the Highest One. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. At this point, the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me, and my face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Of course, he wrote it in a book, but he can't. Other than that, he didn't tell anyone. The angel's interpretation fleshes out the last days of the kingdom. So we're at the last days of this kingdom. Well, we know it's the last days because it leads directly into Christ's second coming. First, the angel says in verse 23, the fourth kingdom is a different kind of kingdom. This is an important issue. It's different in comparison to the other three that came before. And that reminds us of the statue's description, as I just put up from chapter 2. Look in verse 40. This is what Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar about the same thing, about the fourth kingdom. He said, there would be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things. So like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these, meaning the prior kingdoms, into pieces. In that you saw the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay, partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom, meaning it will be a kingdom of divisions. But it will have in it the toughness of iron, inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. As the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong, some of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. I want to draw your attention here to, as Daniel describes this kingdom, the way the fourth kingdom moves outward. It's, first of all, it's different from the rest. So that if your mind is thinking about Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece as the pattern for the fourth one, you're already going down the wrong path because you were just told, break the pattern. This one's different, not like the other three. And as it's described, you get to see how it's different. First of all, it's crushing and breaking up the prior kingdoms into pieces. It's a divided kingdom in little bits and pieces. It's not one monolithic kingdom as the prior three were. It began as the Roman Empire, which was monolithic, yes, but in relatively short order, it began to break apart. In fact, even the Roman Empire itself went through phases in which it was divided east to west. Eventually, it did break up into pieces, and those pieces later recombined in various alliances over the centuries that followed. And that pattern has never changed. Even to today, which, of course, we're still in the Fourth Kingdom. So you start with the Roman Empire, and then by the early 1800s, you had something that was still going by the name Holy Roman Empire, but was really a collection of a bunch of kingdoms or empires or nations that were under the rule of various kings, nobles, and yet they were still aligned in one way or another. And then, of course, those things come and go over time, as we've seen already. And the names change, the alliances change, as you heard in Daniel 2. They combine in the seed of men. We're talking here about unity made through marriage and through other kinds of treaties and the like. 
But then eventually they break apart again and something new comes in its place. Nonetheless, despite this pattern of combining and breaking and so on, collectively, this area, this remnants of the Roman Empire, they all work to serve the same purpose as the prior three kingdoms. That is, they all are collectively scattering Israel out of her land, not allowing Israel back, and dominating Jerusalem, not allowing Israel to have possession of her city. So it's still God oppressing Israel under Gentile authority, not allowing their kingdom to rise again in their land. It has that effect, which is its purpose. Now in Daniel 7, we see the angel confirming this pattern in verse 23. When he says this kingdom is different from the rest. So what we're learning is an important caution as we try to interpret the fourth kingdom in scripture. Don't try to find a single nation or, or government to represent the whole of this kingdom for the whole of its existence. Because God has designed it to be different from the prior pattern. This is one of the primary mistakes that interpreters can make in trying to identify the fourth kingdom and to label it in historical terms. In fact, the amillennialist, amillennialists are those who believe that the Bible does not teach a literal thousand-year reign of Jesus coming to rule on earth. Rather, they believe that we are currently in the kingdom. And this is a common mistake they make in their interpretation because they hold that the fourth kingdom was nothing more than Rome, in the pattern of the prior three. And therefore, when the Roman Empire disappeared, they conclude that the age of Gentiles has ended, that this statue is over, that the beasts are all gone. And therefore, they must now believe, and they claim, that we are living in the kingdom of the Ancient of Days has set up, the kingdom of the Son of Man. In other words, they have to believe that somehow this is the kingdom, and they take all the passages that speak of the kingdom, and they try to turn them and and spiritualize them so that what they say about the coming kingdom, they can relate that to something in our world today. Why are they doing all of that gymnastics with the text to try to say that we're in a kingdom that we can clearly see is not? Well, because they have this over-realized eschatology. They have over-realized it. They've advanced faster in their thinking than the book has actually done in history. And where does it start? Well, one reason is because they believe that the prophecy of Daniel must be over. But that's because they didn't notice that Rome is not going to follow the pattern of the prior three. They didn't realize that breaking in pieces and realigning and so on is part of the pattern. That the fourth kingdom continues. As I labeled it in chapter 2, I didn't call it the Roman kingdom for this very reason. I called it an imperialistic democratic alliance kingdom. Because that's really what it is over time. So, the meaning of the angel's words in verse 23, and of course what we saw in chapter 2 of Daniel, tells us to look for something unlike anything that's come before. So though it starts monolithic, it doesn't end that way. It's crushing and constantly breaking up and realigning. Brexit, anyone? It's fragile. It's pottery and iron. It doesn't hold together very well. It keeps breaking apart. Then in verse 24, the angel begins to explain the horns. Notice, here's one example of what I said earlier tonight. When you're curious what a symbol means, try looking at the very verse it's found in or nearby. It says, the horn is a king. No more guessing required. What does the horn represent? Kings. And what does the beast represent? It represents the whole of the fourth kingdom. So out of the fourth kingdom, historically, somewhere in the time of the fourth kingdom, out of it will come ten kings. But keeping in mind what we learned in Daniel chapter 2, this is all happening at the end of the statue, right? So now we narrow our focus to a very end period in which these ten kings are going to rule. Notice also that these ten horns are contemporaries. 
They exist and they rule simultaneously. This is not like the statue where one arises and replaces another and then another arises and replaces the prior one. They're all there together. Ten kingdoms, ten kings coming out of this single kingdom. That's also echoed in the ten toes. They're all at the very end together. So we know that the ten toes represent ten kings as does the ten horns. They all come at the very end of the age, right before the Lord returns. Friends, we're living in the fourth kingdom now, and yet we do not see, as we sit here today, we do not see ten kings ruling all of the earth in our day. If you go back in history, you've never seen that at any point in the time of the fourth kingdom. Therefore, we know this prophecy is still yet to come in the future. That is to say, in some future day, this world will be ruled by ten kings. Some, talking about amillennialists, They have interpreted the ten kings to be ten successive Caesars that ruled during Rome's time. Here again, remember, they think Rome is the end of this period. That when Rome dissolved, so did this whole prophecy. And so they have to go find their ten somewhere in the Roman time, and they do it by finding ten successive Caesars. Well, there are a lot of problems with that interpretation, but the key problem for us now is that the symbol of ten requires that these kings rule at the same time. And there was never a time when there were ten Caesars all ruling. So the world is yet to see all this ten. It's an unfulfilled prophecy. Then the angel continues in verse 24 to explain the meaning of that eleventh guy. Remember, it's a horn, so it's a king. And the eleventh horn, being a ruler, is not like the rest. He's larger than the rest. We've already been told that. And he's got more detail given to him. There's a lot of ways in which this horn is going to end up being different. Some of the answers we don't get until Daniel 9. Oh, and by the way, you get even more details on him in Revelation. But for now, the, the angel says this horn will subdue three of the existing kings. Now, that detail all by itself confirms that the ten have to be contemporaneous people. The three are being deposed by the eleven. They're all there together. It says they're subdued. That word in in Hebrew could have been translated humbled. So they're taken low, in other words. They're taken out of power. So the eleventh king apparently doesn't have reason to have to humble the other seven, but he has some reason to have to humble three of them. That would imply seven didn't oppose him, maybe. Three did. We're trying to guess at this point. We don't have enough detail. Once the eleventh king has consolidated power, then we're told he begins to go to war against God himself and against the saints of God, that is, believers. And then we hear these intriguing little details. He attempts to make changes to times and to law. All right, those statements are obscure, being by themselves, so we're really only able to propose what it means. A change in times, though, would seem to suggest a change in the calendar in the way of counting time, you know, you may remember our calendar is centered on the first coming of Christ. So it would make some sense then that someone who opposes God, and therefore would oppose Christ, would seek to change the world's calendar that implicitly honor Christ. So that might be his reason for doing that. And a change in law could be almost anything, but considering what we know about him, it would seem to be related to opposing saints. So maybe he's outlawing worship of Christ. Perhaps he determines that those who are professing Christians must die for their faith. We'll see confirmation of this in Revelation. Then the angel says this king will have his way on earth for a period of time, and it's described as a time, times, and half a time. And this phrase is well known to a lot of prophecy students, especially if you've studied the book of Revelation. This phrase is just simple arithmetic. The word time just represents one, and the word times, being plural, represents two. And then half a time would obviously represent 0.5. And if you just write it all out, 1 plus 2 plus 0.5, you end up at 3.5. So later in the book of Revelation, this same phrase is used, and it describes there a period of time of three and a half years. 
Here again, if you don't know a symbol in its context, you go to where you have to find it explained. And since it's explained in Revelation, we bring that understanding back with us into Daniel 7. So time times an half a time means three and a half years. So the eleventh horn reigns over the entire earth, persecuting saints and opposing God for three and a half years. This is what Daniel meant earlier when he said the kingdoms of the age of the Gentiles was granted an extension of life for a brief time. What he's talking about is that the Ancient of Days is sat for judgment. His sentence has been decreed. But for a short time, this king, this 11th, is allowed to continue on earth doing what he's doing, though his fate has been fixed and his judgment is sure. It's just a matter of the clock running out. So for three and a half years, he's allowed a little bit of time to run around before God puts an end to him. If he's only allowed to run around for three and a half years, and then Christ comes back, then by definition, Daniel is describing the last three and a half years of this period that has started with Rome, which is also the end of the whole age of the Gentiles. So the final thing the angel describes is the coming judgment in the kingdom. He says the court sits for judgment, the dominion is taken away, and so on. And then he says we get to win in place of that guy, whoever he is, and we live in the kingdom with our king. We serve him, we obey him. That's the end of the chapter. Before we leave it, I'll summarize what we just learned and then I'll take you to one more section of scripture. This is what we just learned, that as Rome begins the fourth Gentile kingdom, it splits over time into an east-west division like the legs of the statue. Eventually we get to this ten kings part that we just studied. Blowing up that last section then, the ten kings, the eleventh shows up, he gets rid of three, you end up with him plus the seven that remain until Christ's second coming. That's what we've learned. But now, if you were to turn to Revelation 13.1, here we're told in this chapter of a coming world ruler called the Beast, interestingly, who will conquer the entire earth. By the way, there's a little test here. I want you to notice how many things you read here that line up with what you just saw in Daniel 7. And since we know the meaning of these symbols, we don't have to guess or reinterpret them. They all mean the same things. Look how easy it is to understand this chapter if you understand Daniel 7. This is why, by the way, people who study the book of Revelation will tell you that you cannot understand Revelation unless you understand Daniel. Because Daniel is like the decoder ring for understanding Revelation. Revelation 13.1 And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, crowns in other words, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who is able to wage war with him? There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act for forty-two months was given to him. So here you have this beast of a man described as having ten horns with ten crowns on the horns. Notice he comes up from the sea again. Notice this particular beast is constructed of parts of all four beasts from Daniel 7. And he had ten horns, which have ten crowns on them. That would correspond to having ruling authority. Then at some point the leader, it says, is killed. And yet after a time, his fatal wound is healed. Now before we look at that, just reflecting on the description of him, if you were a student of Scripture in John's day, for example, and the book of Revelation was provided to you, and you knew Daniel 7, you could not help but notice that this chapter reads an awful lot like the one you knew back in Daniel 7, and the connection between them would let you make corresponding conclusions. So, for example, this man, this beast, comes up at the time corresponding to the timeline of Daniel, at the end of the age, 
He has the horns, all the animal parts blended together now, which would seem to suggest he's the poster child for this fourth age. It started with Rome, but it really culminates with him. Think about Daniel 7 for that matter. Even in just in Daniel 7, we've studied all these periods, all these different kingdoms, but the focus has been on this one horn. Even Daniel himself said, yeah, 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 I know about those other ones, but what about that horn again? The horn is there to catch your attention. This guy is the horn. And in the way he performs his role at the end of the age, he is the epitome of the whole of the kingdom. He becomes the poster child for it. And that's represented here symbolically by God taking all the little piece parts of the kingdom and mashing them together and saying, this is the guy you've been waiting for. This is the one we were talking about. He is the culmination of this age. So it says in chapter 13 of Revelation that at some point this guy gets killed. And then after that time, it says, his, quote, fatal wound is healed. Uh, Well, the word fatal means what? You died. Healing means you didn't die. So when you say a fatal wound is healed, it's an oxymoron. What it refers to is resurrection. A fatal wound is a fatal wound, but healing it means you come back to life. So he, he dies. Then he's resurrected, and as a result, it says the world is amazed and begins to follow this man, thinking him all-powerful. And who wouldn't, really? After this event, he then begins to boast arrogantly. We might conclude at this point he begins to claim that he is God or that he is Christ. Finally, notice that at that point, that is to say, at the point of his resurrection, he has time left in the spotlight for exactly 42 months. And I'll give you one guess how long 42 months is. Three and a half years. All of these details then confirm that this man is the 11th horn of Daniel. He is coming into power for the final three and a half years of the fourth kingdom, which is also then three and a half years before Christ's second coming. He goes by many names in the Bible, including the 11th horn or the beast here in Revelation 13. In chapter 9, Daniel is going to call him the prince to come. Paul calls him the son of destruction and the man of lawlessness. John labels him the son of perdition. And most famously of all, John gives him the name Antichrist in John's letters. So the Antichrist rules the entire world for the final three and a half years of a seven-year period that we call tribulation. It is the last period of this age before Christ's second coming. He is able to gain this rule over the whole of the world because he only has ten men standing between him and rule of the planet. And it would appear as though by his miraculous resurrection he is then able to convince the whole of the world that he is God himself or has the power of God and they fall in line it says and they worship him they say who could be more powerful than he is and by those boastful claims those arrogant blasphemies it says he then consolidates his power Revelation 13.2 earlier in that passage I showed you we're told that the dragon gave his power to the beast and if you were to go back to Revelation 12 you find that the dragon is Satan Because that's where that symbol is defined for us. So it would appear that Satan himself is the power behind his ability to resurrect. And when we start to put all the pieces together, it would seem then that the ten men are ruling when out of somewhere this man appears on the scene with some kind of political power, some ability to influence, but not yet ruling. And at a point midway through tribulation, the ten who are in charge, at least three of them realize that this eleventh guy is someone they don't trust anymore and that they need to get rid of. It appears as though those three might have been the ones responsible for killing him. I say that because when he returns to life, those are the three that are gone. And the other seven apparently fall in line behind him very easily and don't challenge his power. 
And later in Revelation, Revelation 17, we hear this. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings. Same interpretation. Who have not yet received a kingdom. This is the angel talking to John in John's day. He's saying these are ten who have not yet received a kingdom. But they receive authority as kings with the beast, that is with the Antichrist, for, for one hour, which is a way of saying for a short time. Next verse. These, the ten, have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. In other words, God says that the ten toes of Daniel 2, or the ten horns of Daniel 7, or now what we're seeing in Revelation, are all picturing these same ten guys. And Revelation 17 says their whole reason to even be allowed to come to power, the whole reason God brings the world down to just ten in the first place, is so they can serve one purpose, to just hand all their power over to the Antichrist. So that the Antichrist has a clear path to success to gaining power over the world. Imagine how much harder it would be for a man to rise to power over the earth if he had to conquer the 200 and something nations that now occupy the world. So we know that something's going to happen in our coming in the future, whether soon or not, in which we're going to see the world consolidated down into just a handful of rulers, and that at some point in that time, after that time, the tribulation will begin. And at some point after that time, the 11th man will rise, who will seek to gain control, and through a death and resurrection process, he will manage it. He will achieve it. And as a result, he will rule for a short time over the world, conquering and attempting to destroy God's people. But he will not succeed in the end, and the Lord will return and destroy him. Um, Some might wonder about Christ's words when he says, no one will know the exact day and hour of his coming, which is something he said in Matthew 24, because as you can tell, we can tell exactly when Jesus is going to come, at least after a certain point. Once the tribulation begins, you know he's coming in seven years. Once the Antichrist is resurrected, if you were happen to be here, you won't be, but if you were, you would then be able to say three and a half years, Jesus is coming back. Those things would seem to defy what Jesus said. Well, the answer, of course, is that Jesus wasn't speaking about his second coming when he spoke those words. He was speaking about his return for the bride of Christ, for the church. His return for us at the rapture, as some call it, or the resurrection. That's a moment that only the Father knows. But Christ's second coming to establish his kingdom is a date dependent on a series of other events which Daniel and Revelation describes. So it can't happen until all of these other things have happened that we're waiting for. That's how I can tell you definitively there is no way, according to Scripture, that Christ's second coming could happen today or even to tomorrow or any time in the next three and a half years minimum. Or seven, for that matter, because we're not in the tribulation. But we're not waiting for that. The church is waiting for its rapture. Okay, so we're, we're at the end of our chiasm. Friends, we now have a clear understanding of the age of the Gentiles. It is a period that God brought to pass judgment against his own people. It's going to be many centuries of Gentiles ruling over Israel. It's marked by these four major empires. Um, Daniel saw the arrival of the first two. We're living in the fourth. And we won't see the very end of it, but we may see some of the events that lead up to it. Then the chiasm went further and said to Israel that despite the fact that they've been subjected to Gentiles, the Lord didn't forget them. He continues to act to preserve a remnant. He continues to protect them. And that was evidenced by what Daniel and his friends experienced when the Lord rescued them. And then at the heart of the chiasm, in the center of it, what we learned was that even the Gentile rulers who control Israel don't act with impunity. God himself retains his sovereignty over them. So that even as Gentiles command Israel, God commands the Gentiles. And that's a final assurance to Israel that God is not moving to destroy them, but to discipline them and ultimately to extend his mercy to Gentiles as well. Father, once more, I do thank you for your word. I thank you for your providence 
your awesome power and your promise to bring all things to good. And thank you, Father, that we won't be here to see the worst of it, that you will remove us before then, Father. That is a hope that we all share. And, Father, we pray that in our influence through our witness, we might be useful to you and rescuing even more out of it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.